0: Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios, and of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. Welcome to a special edition of The Path and the Practice. This episode is special because my guest is not a Foley and Lardner attorney. My guest today is Rithu Basing, who is an extraordinary diversity, equity, inclusion, and leadership consultant, whom we were fortunate to recently have speak at Foley and Lardner during a virtual Attorneys of Color retreat. So I got Rithu on the show because the work she does is just so important. And a lot of what is top of mind for her are the very things that we are struggling with when it comes to furthering diversity, equity, inclusion in large law firms. But before we dive into some of those topics, I first have Rithu talk about her path. So she discusses her path to law school as she reflects on the years she spent practicing, and then her decision to become a legal talent management professional, as well as her decision over a decade ago to launch her own consulting firm, where she has since worked with over 200 law firms. We then just dive in, and we dive into a lot of the things you'd probably expect two diversity and inclusion professionals to talk about. The first topic, which I felt was obligatory, was we talk about implicit bias, what it is, how to dismantle it, and what we all need to keep in mind so that we can learn how to be more inclusive of others. After that, we talk about fitting in versus belonging. We talk a lot about the importance of authenticity, and we also speak quite a bit about self-care especially self-care for those who are members of underrepresented groups and they have really found themselves struggling the last 18 months. Overall, this is a fun discussion and I think there's something in it for everyone, but it is a discussion where you either may find yourself nodding along or you may find yourself reflecting a bit on some of your long-held beliefs, which ultimately is the purpose of diversity and inclusion work. Also, if you enjoy hearing from Rithu and would like to hear from a couple of guests on the podcast who also are not Foley and Lardner attorneys, I would encourage you to check out some of my other special episodes. One is episode 13 with Michelle Silverthorne, who is also a DEI professional. And then also with Tonit Calloway, who is the executive vice president, chief administrative officer, general counsel, and secretary at Borg Warner. That is episode 38. And on that show, Tonnet details her path to the C-suite. But with that, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Rithu. Rithu Basin, welcome to The Path in the Practice. So excited to have you here today. You are a special episode because you are not a Foley and Lardner attorney. We will talk about who exactly you are and what you do shortly, but let's just jump right in. Could you give a quick introduction of yourself, please?
1: Uh, First of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm so grateful. And so my name is Ritu, Ritu Basin. I go by the Indian pronunciation. My parents are from India. She, her, hers. So I am a lawyer by training. I practiced law for a few years, many, many years ago, I'd say like 20 years ago now. And then I transitioned to... Becoming an HR professional for a large Canadian law firm uh, because I am Canadian. You'll hear the Canadian in me when I say things like out and about. I'm based in Toronto, Canada, although I work very much uh, primarily in the US and globally. And so I did HR for lawyers for about seven years. And then for the last 11 years, I have been running my own diversity, equity, inclusion consulting firm, which is Biscine Consulting Inc. We go by BCI for short, and working with organizations around the world. That's essentially like my professional background, but I would say I care about inclusion. It's my heartbeat. I care about empowerment. I care about making the world a better place. I love food. I love music. I love Netflix.
0: And I feel like for you also just like well-being and authenticity and all the things that are required to have those things. And also, I have to say, I think I started the podcast by saying your name wrong, which you know what, I'm glad I did it, because I think we're going to talk a little bit about names throughout this. So no, I'm not glad I said your name wrong. But I think I, I stressed the syllables incorrectly in your last name.
1: But you know Alexis, I think so so here's the thing. What I always say about my name and I have had like a really interesting journey with my name because uh, at a young age my school teachers pronounced it re2 and I went with it because I wanted to shield and deflect bias because by already at the very young age I knew that I was different than people I was going to school with and I was already Feeling othered, and so I Anglicized my name at a young age. It was around the age of thirty that I had a what I call my name identity revival, where I was like, "Enough with that!" Like in the legal profession, people are not saying my name right; they're calling me Ritu. It's wrong. It felt like nails on a chalkboard. And I essentially had every single human being, including my own family members, who were calling me Ritu because I wouldn't let them call me Ritu, the proper pronunciation. I had them all transition to saying my name correctly, and. Uh, what I care most about is that people try. And so, for example, your pronunciation of my name, I'm like, oh, that's good. And this is such an important point. People don't need to to get it right 100%. It doesn't need to be perfect. I just need to know that people try and they care.
0: And so when I said I'm glad I did, because I think it was your last name in particular, like the, the syllables were a little bit off the way I said it. But this is such an important discussion, and we are going to dig in and talk about you, but I love that we're talking about this right away because we had you come to Foley and speak to our attorneys of color on a variety of topics. One of them, the main one was the internalization of bias, and you specifically spoke on this issue because there are a lot of people, no matter where you are from, who have names that for whatever reason, particularly out of the United States or Canada, people will say, oh, that's just too hard for me to attempt. And many people have started saying fine, you know, I'm not gonna even have you attempt it, but I think it's an important to, to model one. I try, I will try to say that person's name. Often the first time I meet someone, my first question of them is how do I properly say your name? And someone will say to me, I'm so glad you asked, because people won't even attempt. And what, you know, there literally are certain ways of pronouncing words that growing up where I've grown up, I may not really have the physical capability of doing it, but I can try. And of course, with you, you know, you're very experienced in this, but you then took the opportunity to say, you know, actually, this is my name. This is how you say it. You don't, you didn't make a joke of it. It wasn't awkward. It was just a statement. So I just, I like how you get two diversity inclusion professionals on a podcast. And we jump right to this and we will circle back to it. But you also just talked a bit about your experience as a child. You shared that you are from Toronto. So did you grow up in Toronto? Is that where? where life started for you?
1: Yes, yeah, So my parents are from India and they immigrated to Canada now would have been uh, over 50 years ago. And we are Punjabi by culture, which is in the northern parts of India. And we are Sikh by faith. And when I say Sikh by faith, my faith is called Sikhism. I am a Sikh. It is spelled S-I-K-H. Many people pronounce it, including my own people, pronounce it as Sikh. That is not the correct pronunciation. That is the colonized pronunciation. And as we work very hard to decolonize language, which includes us as people who come from communities that were historically colonized and frankly continue to be, People learn to say our names correctly. It also means have reclaiming the pronunciation of words that, uh, connected to our identities. And so I'm, I'm on a mission to have people say sick correctly, including my own people. So you, you can impress all your sick friends, everyone, after today by saying sick as opposed to Sikh or Sikhism as opposed to Sikhism. And so my parents immigrated and... Me and my siblings were born in Toronto, Canada. It's where I primarily lived, although I've, I've traveled extensively and I've done short stints living abroad. And then I, based in Toronto, I do my work from here. And you know, I'd say it's so interesting doing DEI work from Canada, but primarily in the U.S. And as someone whose cultural roots come from South Asia, like I just have a really my own experiences. Like, am I Canadian? Well, people think Canadian people are white. I'm not white but then I'm not Indian because I wasn't born there, but I am very Indian in some respects. And then I work so globally. And then it's like, but who am I? I really affiliate with being a woman of color, but what does that mean? And it's like, I had, I do a lot of empowerment work as you'll know from checking out my social media and like my videos, blogs online. And I would say like I felt really confused growing up around my ethnic identity. And so I, so yes, I'm Canadian, I'm proudly Canadian but I am also proudly Punjabi. I'm proudly sick. I'm proudly a brown girl. I deeply identify as being a woman of color, cisgender, hetero, deeply identify as, as a woman of color. And, um,
0: empowered by that. You know, and we're not going to break down the whole concept of intersectionality, but for those who know what it is, I think you very much showed it right then. But also what I think is interesting, I truly think without getting sort of too out there that life qualifies you for various experiences. And I think that when you describe all of the things that, you know, come together in terms of your life experience, you were being qualified to be a diversity and inclusion and empowerment professional. You didn't know it when you were in middle school, probably dealing with, you know, being treated as other, but, you know, fast forward now and those experiences are very valuable to what you do. And this discussion is tough for me because I want to spend a little bit more time on your background and your path to law school and then you know your transition. And then we're going to jump into some of your advice to people and various arenas, but indulge me just a little bit more in snippet of life as a kid. You've alluded to it, but give me a little bit more because I know there were some difficult times there. And then tell me about why you became a lawyer and just a little bit about your legal path.
1: Yeah, I love that. I love this question. Um, and it, actually, it's where I intuitively wanted to go next, anyhow. So, we're cosmically connected, Alexis. Like so, I wrote a book called The Authenticity Principle. And I talk a lot about this in my book, but also online across my platforms about how I am a survivor of relentless racist childhood bullying in particular. And when I say relentless, it went on for years. Like I was tormented by it as a child, which led to deep trauma around my experiences with racism as a, as a kid. And I have personally experienced extensive therapy in order to help me heal from those very traumatic experiences, in addition to watching my parents experienced racism as new immigrants and we're very visible because my father, for example, wears a turban, usually a bright red one or a maroon color, his favorite colors. My mom has long hair. I had long hair back then. I, I do now, although you're not supposed to cut your hair in my faith, but I did as a way to deflect racism and torment. I now wear it long though and from a very young age i was very acutely aware of how oppression and marginalization can taint your experiences in life i didn't i didn't have that language then all i knew is that i felt othered and i was hurting about from it and from a very young age i learned that if you push down your differences Ritu, like if you push down your cultural identity so as a girl, a smart girl, you play down your smartness as a brown person, a brown girl. If you act more white, and I'm using quotes, you can't see me do this, but quite embodying more Anglo centric white anglo centric white canadian slash american centric ways of behaving you will fit in more again in quotes you'll gain some level of acceptance that i should mask the fact that i grew up very working class as opposed to growing up fancy like all my other school colleagues or legal profession colleagues that i would gain acceptance so i learned from a young age to what i call perform in my book the forming self not high i don't mean performance like high performance i mean like life is a stage and you're an actor on the stage putting out a curated image
0: of Putting on the mask. Exactly. And so in my book, in
1: my authenticity content, I call this the performing self. So I I quashed my authentic self in favor of putting out the performing self as a way to gain acceptance. And it worked, it worked, but it had a massive price tag because while I became professionally successfully, I felt soulless. Now, as I was journeying through my teenage years, I increasingly felt like I want to do something about the injustices I'm experiencing, my people are experiencing. When I see my people, Growing up when I was young in the eighties, nineteen eighty-four in particular, my people, the Sikh community experienced genocide in India at the hands of the Hindu majority government. And so I also experienced genocide of my people during my youth. And I come from a culture. Well, I would argue strongly all cultures have misogyny embedded in them, but South Asian culture is misogyny, is highly pronounced. I was acutely aware of misogyny as well. And so I just I grew up with a deep commitment to wanting to address injustices. Which which lawyer?
0: So it's like, I'm going to be a lawyer, right? Is that the...
1: So, so isn't it interesting? Because like, I would say like, so I'm like in my 40s now. So we're talking like the 890s and early 2000s. It's like, there was no such thing as a diversity inclusion.
0: This did not exist. This was not an option. I'm sorry. There was although you know what's funny? My mom's area of expertise is, is technically diversity and inclusion, but from that much more like affirmative action plans, EEO planning. So there there was that, and that was something I saw. But in terms of what I think the types of things that you do and that I do, that's not literally creating affirmative action plans, that didn't exist. That that was not an option.
1: No. And so back then, like when I was like 17, 18, 19, thinking, what am I going to do with my life? It was like, oh, you care about undoing injustices. Well, you could become a politician. You could work for a nonprofit, like work for a charity, or you can become a lawyer. I also danced with the idea of becoming a journalist, but coming from an Indian household, like my good, strong Punjabi parents were like, oh, you want to work for a nonprofit? No, no, you should become a lawyer. Yes. So that's what I did. I thought I was going to do Social justice law, but like many law students, and especially law students of color, law students who come from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, I got swept up into the big law tide because, like, my first year salary as an associate was more than my parents had made combined growing up. And there was so much messaging when I was in law school that success was measured by going to one of the big law firms. So I did it. And I, not surprisingly, disliked it tremendously. I hopped around from firm to firm and then I realized, oh, it's not the firms, it's me. It's not you, it's me. And the practice of law is not for me. But I was always very focused on people. Like I loved mentoring and I loved connecting with people. And I just thought the job that I could see people doing where they were running the, associate programs, the student programs it just looked like so much fun. Like it just looked great. And I was like, that's what I want to do. So that's essentially what I did. I did that for seven years. But at the tail end of it, I decided to leave and start my own consulting firm. through my journey doing HR for a law firm. It is during that experience, which I enjoyed the work, I loved the work, but that's when I found myself deeply lost. So I, I was around like, I was in my early thirties when I realized, wow, I'm professionally very successful. Like, I'm like the face of the firm.
0: It looks great on paper. On paper, this is awesome. Yeah, it looks so good.
1: Like, you know, my parents get so happy because they see me on, like, I'm on the radio or I'm, like, in magazines. and Ooh, it's not exciting. But... I felt spiritually vacant because I had now spent 10 years in big law and I didn't know who I was because even to even to become successful at the leadership ranks I was conforming I was my performing self was everywhere my authentic self was like I didn't even know who I was I was so used to changing the way I speak dress what I talked about my hobbies like OMG like I've been out of big law for 11 years I have not golfed once gone to like one golf course I've not even gone to one golf course I do not watch like sports unless like the Raptors are winning which they are not like and I'm only a bandwagon fan like I do not I do not read sports headlines anymore like this the things I used to do in order to fit in. I'm like, F that. I'm not doing that anymore because I don't have to. But I felt like I had to. And so becoming an entrepreneur, so taking my legal education and all of my skills I developed in the trenches over 10 years in big law, I took all of that and I pivoted and created a business. I've now worked with over 200 law firms and legal departments globally based on my experiences in the trenches, but I pivoted. And I think like, I'm a really good example of how you can start with a legal education, you could start as a practicing lawyer, and you can take all of that and pivot into something that you design for yourself that really works for you, because I have created my own joy in doing so.
0: Oh, you said so many things that I wish we could talk for like four hours, but we won't. We have a certain amount of time. But I'm going to try to hit some of this somewhat what quickly and maybe get some of your reflections. Going back to your decision to even go into big law and that connection between being a person of color or being a first generation Canadian or American and the, the lure of the money, right, to big law, I think is just really interesting in general. I had somebody on a panel ask me, Alexis, how do you think the recent salary increases in big law are going to affect diversity? And I said, the money's not going to keep diverse people. Like we know that already. So it's interesting because for people of all kinds of reasons, for reasons are attracted to the money, but the money w- does not make up for, like you said, you know, feeling soulless, being unhappy, all of these things. So I just think it's interesting that populations that ostensibly need the money will not stay just for the money. So I just had to say that out loud to anybody who hadn't thought of it that way. And also, by the way, people of color, particularly back to intersectionality and women, we often talk about women leaving the law for the mommy track. By the way, women of color in particular are not leaving the law for the mommy track. They're just working somewhere else. They're not staying at home because women of color tend to be the breadwinners in the family. So just had to get get that out. But also this idea of authenticity and fit and happiness is actually, I think, a theme throughout this podcast. So you're probably going to be episode 50 something. And at this point, every attorney I've had on has talked about the importance of them really liking their practice, liking who they work with, getting able to do the things they enjoy, family stuff you know some people are like in bands running triathlons but if you're gonna do anything professionally for a really long time I hate to say this but like you're going to have to like it, ideally. And this is a privilege, by the way. There's plenty of people who do not have this privilege of self-reflection because they're just trying to pay the rent. But that is a theme. But I love that you practice as a lawyer, then went to the other side of the house, the leadership and the talent side of the house, really got a sense of how these places work, and now serve as a guide to help us in large law firms. I know you also work with other corporations in figuring out, you know, for lack of a better term, this diversity thing. And we have a lot of things that we still need to figure out. And I'm often asked by the way, Alexis, how do we how do we fix this? And I'm like, "Well, you make me queen or give me a magic wand and I'll wave it." <laughs> and then we'll fix and then we'll fix it. But this is a good segue to the other many topics I want to speak to you about. If the listeners don't know, you're someone whose career I followed for a long time, even before I entered diversity and inclusion. So just for me, we're even having like a tiny bit of a fangirl moment where I'm like, I get to talk with Rithu about diversity and it's recorded and other people get to listen. But this is a little bit of a pivot. But I do think fortunately or unfortunately, you get two diversity and inclusion professionals together, they want to hear us talk about implicit bias. They do, just for a few minutes. You know, what what are your thoughts on implicit bias in the workplace? What do we do about it? Just a a couple minutes on that. What do you think?
1: So first of all, I love all of what you have said, like all of it. So thank you so much for all of that. So bias, what is bias? What's unconscious bias, implicit bias, the mental shortcuts our brains take in decision making in this context as it relates to how we treat people who are not like us. Our biases are both inherent, like we're wired to engage in them because we are wired to gravitate towards people who look and sound like us unconsciously because our nervous systems hold the belief that people who are like us are less likely to eat us. Essentially, this is reptilian brain stuff. And that's why we gravitate towards sameness. But we are also conditioned through both direct and indirect messaging from the very moment we are born by elders and others about who we should like and who we shouldn't, but also messaging around who people are and who they are not. And All of that has a profound impact on who we gravitate towards, who we avoid, who we treat better, who we treat less favorably, who we believe is excellent and who isn't, who we believe are criminals, who we believe are smart, who we believe are lawyers, partner types, who are not, all of that. Who are terrorists? I mean, I could go on and on. And so... If we had been doing this podcast two years ago, I would have stopped there. But here we are two years later. We've had the pandemic. We've had the murder of George Floyd and many other people of color, Black people in particular in Canada, Indigenous peoples as well. And we are talking more about racial injustices. We're talking more openly about supremacy, power, privilege. So I will be more direct now in talking about bias. Our unconscious biases reflect white supremacy. They reflect male supremacy. They reflect cisgender supremacy hetero supremacy rich people supremacy more educated people supremacy the supremacy of people who do not at present have physical or mental health challenges so biases yes they are these not unconscious decisions that our brains make shortcuts but they at the end of the day they reflect and they affirm our society's normatives around who is more deserving better more competent and more. And so racial biases are about white supremacy. Gender biases are about male supremacy and cisgender supremacy. I could go on and on, which is why it is so critical that we actively seek to interrupt them. And we need to interrupt them in two ways. We need to focus on individually held beliefs. So every single person in the legal profession must own their own stuff, must own the disruption of their their biases they hold, both consciously and unconsciously. So we have to work on this at the individual level, and we need to work on this at the systems level, which means taking a look at how every single system structure practice within the legal profession reflects White supremacy, male supremacy, cisgender, hetero supremacy. And, and I could go on and
0: on. And you see me nodding my head a lot because you're like taking me to church. I'm like, yes, yes, yes. And I found overall with, within I just I won't just pick on legal, you know, I think organizations, we've actually spent more time on the individual. But even when we do it, sometimes we get really academic. It's like, here's definitions of confirmation bias, here's in-group bias. And that's great. People should know that. But I think what's so important people understand, and I get that these words can be triggering. Nobody wants to have a bias. Nobody wants to be a part of a system of oppression. But just to be very clear, I mean, down to the bias of tall people versus short people, you know, pretty people versus not pretty people. We have preferences and this understanding that you have preferences and truly becoming aware of those preferences. And this starts getting real personal, by the way. I often call this life's work stuff. I actually need you to have a relationship with yourself such that you are able to question your own thoughts. And frankly, many of us don't even have the ability to pause to even realize we're having a thought before we're acting. So the stuff gets very deep. Like we start getting into all types of psychology, (laughs) like I'd say even it gets borderline religious at times, depending on who, where you want to look, but that, that you need to get so fundamentally curious about yourself and realize you are embarking on life's work stuff. As a diversity inclusion professional, I don't catch myself all the time, but occasionally I get curious about my own thoughts. I'm like, oh, Alexis, I think you assumed your interaction with this person would be this way because you learned English is not their first language. There was a part of you that briefly maybe did not want to engage in as broad, out of a discussion with that individual because of biases that I as an American hold when really I should be like, that person speaks four languages. They are really, really smart. But just like, I'm just sharing an example. There's certain biases as you know well, that are actually, we find more acceptable than others, such as age. You know, like boomers complaining about millennials, but those are still biases. Also, I love that you raise the systems. If for those who follow me on social media, particularly LinkedIn, I talk a lot about the systems because knowing that that individual stuff is hard work and I need a lot of buy in from the individual. If I can go ahead and create a talent system that can interrupt some of that for you, for example, instead of you continuing to work with the same associate you've always worked with, we work with you to find someone else to work on your matters, like that sort of thing. i have now presenting with you with others to consider without you. But you said a couple of other things that I have to also get back to. I'm just going to throw things out there and you can respond. You mentioned this idea of, of fitting in. And so just the other day, and this was back when you were talking about your experience working, I shared a quote from Brene Brown that starts off with her saying, the opposite of belonging is fitting in. And I think for a lot of people that as humans, we want to conform to some extent because if we conform, we belong. But truly, when you're trying to fit in, it actually means you don't belong. And you get into this whole thing where you also really don't belong to yourself because you're, you're, so I just, I wanted to bring up that. And then also, experiences and trauma, because listeners may not know, but we've gotten there. We've gotten to this because you've done a ton of work on trauma because your experiences around belonging, fitting in, bias, systems of oppression, I know they've led you there. And I would love for you to talk about why that is. Why is that work necessary as well?
1: Both of those points that you raised are connected, actually. So I, I love Brene's work. I think so much of what she has said is brilliant. I have a quote that I often put out there, and i mentioned it in my book, that fitting in will never replace actual belonging. So fitting in will never replace actual belonging. Because what happens with fitting in is that we are changing who we are. We're performing in order to have the doors of accept- acceptance open. And yes, the doors may open a crack, because we're conforming, we're like talking the way the partner wants us to talk, or we're dressing the way that we think the client expects us to dress and whatever. And so yeah, the doors will open, but they'll never replace actual belonging. Because what happens is you'll step through the door, you will going to foot through the door, and you'll be like, oh, okay, you're accepting me. Now let me show you who I really am. And it'll be like, nah, step back, get like, door starts to close. And so fitting in, it's a house of cards because you'll do it and it'll work a little bit, but it'll never actually give you what you want, which is actual belonging. And I think for me, what I realized over time, like you mentioned earlier about how inclusion or the interruption of bias is life's work. I had a really interesting experience happen with me when I launched, launched my business, my consulting firm 11 years ago. In tandem, I launched the consulting firm and was starting to focus more on teaching DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion content. And so that was what I was doing by day, like for my work. And then in my personal life, I was digging deep into my mindfulness practice. And so I had already by then done, I was already trained as a yoga teacher. I did my first yoga teacher training in India and I was doing additional teacher training in Canada while I was launching my business and building my business. And I was having this very interesting experience where all of the mindfulness concepts that I was learning through studying yoga, which, by the way, was invented 8,000 years ago at least by brown people in India and yet has been culturally appropriated, co opted by. I would argue very strongly, white people around the world. I just want to mention this because while we're calling out biases and systemic issues, this is a blatant area, systemic racism and white supremacy and cultural appropriation, an Indian indigenous practice. And I just, I want to name that. I think that's very important. And so as I was studying and learning and digging deep, I was like, wow, so much of what I'm learning over here with mindfulness and yoga is exactly what is the solution to addressing biases because biases about, it's the brain stuff. It's like slow down the brain, bring conscious awareness to what is my brain saying about black people, about trans women, about people who have lived experience with anxiety, depression. What is my brain saying? What am I doing on my face? What's the energy I'm putting out there?
0: And being present with your thoughts so you can question them, realizing you are not your thoughts, all of that. You're, yes, go on.
1: hand in hand. But because of white supremacy, because of my fear of bias, I kept the two separate. And so for many years, uh, when I launched my business 11 years ago, I focused on the analytical side of teaching inclusion while in tandem knowing that the real solution was over there on the other side with my mindfulness practice and all the other self healing work that I was doing for my own needs and benefits. But the more I dug deep into this work, it, I realized I'm like, I can't teach these separately and I'm not gonna keep watering down the mindfulness stuff because I'm doing a disservice to them and I'm not honoring myself and I'm reinforcing white supremacy by, by not talking about it because I worry that in the legal world or the business world, people think I'm like some brown girl hippie dippy person and I'm not analytical enough and whatever. And then I was like, F this noise. I'm I'm just going to bring them together and I started to do that I'm very data driven like so the western world loves their data and so look I'm data driven but I'm also very I'm very neuroscience focused in what, how I teach and then I'm deeply all about critical consciousness and how people who hold biases, i.e. everyone, we interrupt. But also, as I dug deeper and deeper into teaching and working with people of color in particular, and then intersectionality, women of color, about how to be empowered in the face of consistently experiencing multiple forms of oppression, as I was digging deeper and deeper into that work, not only was I finding it healing for me because I realized, wow, even though I'm as empowered and successful as I've become, I'm still wounded and I'm still hurting and I need help. But I started to see how... Actually, this isn't just I don't speak at meetings as a woman of color because I fear bias or I feel like you're going to judge me. I don't speak at meetings because I question myself worth because I've consistently received messages that I am unworthy in your presence, even though I'm sitting here going, you're all saying this wrong. And the right answer is blah, blah, blah. And you fumble and fumble and fumble for 12 minutes and finally figure out what I had in my head 12 minutes ago. And I could have said, but I didn't say because I worried that you're going to judge me, but also because I don't believe I'm worthy of speaking. And when I started to really dig into that work, I was like, this is trauma. That's what pushed me into studying trauma. So I've almost completed my trauma therapy certification program. It's funny. I had a therapist say to me once, uh, he said, Ritu, most people, they like yoga. They just go and take yoga classes. No, not you. You're like, I like yoga, so I'm going to go study it. And that's the same thing. It's like, I'm deeply fascinated by trauma. It's like, no, no, I just won't like... Get trauma therapy, like to heal myself.
0: You're like, I need to then heal myself, teach others, become certified. Let's do it all.
1: Go study it. I gotta like get nail it. Like whatever. It's like very Indian product of Indian uh, tiger Indian parent upbringing but I I started to study trauma more deeply and in both in the authenticity principle and I'm now writing a book for people of color on how to heal in the face of experiencing racism and be empowered and stand in your power it's all it, it deeply goes into trauma because without us even knowing like when people interrupt us they don't say our names correctly they don't make eye contact they don't ask us to speak. They don't look at us in the hallways. They don't give us the stretch assignment, even though they know we want it. I mean, I could go on and on and on with the multitude of examples that people who come from equity seeking communities experience. Yes, it hurts us and bothers us like in our minds, but we also hold that hurt, that grief, that pain in our nervous systems, in our bodies. It creates tension, creates health issues and more like on a Monthly basis, we are learning more and more around the link between experiencing racism, forms of oppression, and health issues. And so this is real stuff. And so I, as you can probably tell from my voice, I'm very interested in it. I'm very excited about it. I
0: feel very passionately about it. It's where the work leads, and I'm totally interrupted you, but I think because I've I do not have the experience with trauma study or research that you do. But doing this work leads you there. Doing this works leads you to should I just go ahead and become a therapist or a psychiatrist of some type? Because we're dealing with deeply human issues, and just to touch on what you were saying about some of the best tools we have to heal ourselves are things that have been around for thousands of years but we don't feel like we can talk about them until they've, they're they written up in a Harvard Business Review article. And by the way, I'm a huge fan of Susan David and emotional agility, which I very much think is Eastern philosophy is essentially Buddhism that's been like sanitized through Harvard.
1: <laughs> that, that's what happens. Like, I'm not familiar with her work uh, uh, directly. Like, she doesn't come to mind, but this is exactly what happens. Like any of the prominent healers who are white, it's like, this is Eastern philosophy. It's just, and and as South Asian people Because of our own internalized oppression, like internalized racism, our own continued colonization, we have not called it out yet.
0: No, absolutely. And I also think there's so many things I want to say, and I have to be mindful because we're going to we're going to start winding this down shortly. But also, as employers our relationships with our employees, with our lawyers as law firms is different. People don't just come in to, you know, make a widget each day. We're actually ask, we're, we we've moved from that labor-based workforce to a knowledge-based workforce and for me to unlock your unique form of brilliance, all of this stuff matters in a way that we didn't have to think about it before and also add in that frankly in a lot of ways we're raising the lawyer like you're starting at these firms at 24 25 years old you're figuring out who you are as a person <laughs> while we're trying to extract this knowledge from you so all of these things that were never on the table before are and also let's. and this is going to be the segue to the last topic i'd love before we before we conclude but Then we had a global pandemic, which I think in some ways has, as you know well, has heightened the collective awareness of various types of systemic oppression, as well as just this need for self-care and well-being in a way that we are all stretch especially mentally because we also like to spend a lot of time in our heads particularly as lawyers in a way that you know others haven't and so I love that you started raising tools and I'm just going to leave everybody wanting more because what's going to happen with this they're gonna be like how do I get to her website she said some things that sound like me but she didn't tell me how to fix it So we'll talk about how they can find you after, but talk about that, like whether it be for people of color or the BIPOC community, however, whatever acronym we want to use, or just for anyone who is struggling right now, like what can we do with these tools about trauma and tools for the body for me to to address some of the burnout that, you know, I may be feeling now?
1: Love that question. I think step one is for us to, first of all, understand that we have been socialized to reject the very tools that will help us to heal. And so, so many of us come from ancient indigenous cultures. Like I'm thinking like across countries in Africa, across South Central America, across Canada, the US, indigenous cultures all over Asia. I mean, literally on every inch of this planet, we come from ancient indigenous cultures where our ancestors knew about using healing practices like drumming and tapping and Tai Chi and yoga mindfulness, humming, chanting collectively, stretching, breathing exercises, shaking, twitching, like I could go on and on, massage. We come from cultures that knew to do this. But the problem is that because of colonization, because of experiences like enslavement, genocide, cultural appropriation, our practices were demonized and vilified, co-opted, appropriated. And now so because of white supremacy, white people can do them and they're readily accepted. But when we do them, it's like, why are you doing that funky stuff over there? Or that's so weird and strange. It's like, so, and then we have on our own, like, we vilified our very own practices that we know all the Western world data that pokes and prods our ancestral practices, affirms that our ancestors had it right. So we, it's colonized, we're colonized in our own th- mind, not our faults, not our faults. It's a system. Yep. And
0: by the way, when you say that like meditation and you know, I think acupuncture are, are two big ones that there's a ton of research on how the effects are, and now, you know, meditations become kind of like the flavor of the day, but just as an example.
1: All of it, like I mean, we could go on and on. It, it, it literally, example like osteopathy, like we, a Chinese medicine, like which is not even viewed as being real medicine because it doesn't have the Western culture.
0: ayurveda. All of that, yes.
1: Like I could like thing after thing. So anyhow, we first have to understand. Wow, I've, I'm demonizing my own practices because the system taught me to do this, and then it's about really anchoring and. Focusing, like digging deep into what are the self-care practices, t- techniques that resonate with you to live well. And so uh, on Instagram a lot, where I'm very active or on my website, rithybasine.com, I have like multiple videos and blogs and free uh, self-reflection worksheets and more about what are some of the self-care techniques that you can literally be using directly to help you heal from experiences around depression. Like I am all about each of us creating our own self-care, healing toolkits to be in a place where we feel elevated and empowered. And by the way, like these are all techniques that I personally have used to thrive and I like I'm living proof around how you can be heartbroken, like you can literally be tormented by racism and heal and thrive because I would say I finally am able to feel beautiful in my skin after years of feeling ugly, like literally actually thinking I was ugly on the outside and inside. And I I'm laughing I am courageous slash fearless as it relates to calling out injustices I'm like never again will I be the doormat I once was because I did back then I didn't know but now I know And I'm like f that like I have learned how to use empowerment tools and techniques to help me stand in my power to use my voice like actually speak and call out injustices I experience directly in the moment when it's happening and do it in a way that I'm affirming the interruption of inequities, not sanitizing it, not watering it down, and still have my message be heard. And I'm about doing this for systems as well. And so we can do this, we just need to learn the techniques. And so I talk all about this online, and you can check it out there.
0: Yep. And so I encourage everyone to check check your stuff out, your get your book, The Authenticity Code. But also, Rithu, I think you just epitomize belonging. And first, we have to belong to ourselves before we can ever feel like we belong anywhere else. And all the work you've talked about has done that. You know, With that, I will just thank you so, so much for being on the show and encourage listeners to reach out to you, whether it be through your website or through your Instagram. But thank you for joining me today, Rithu.
1: Thank you so much for having me I'm so grateful thank you for all of your words of wisdom Alexis I follow you on LinkedIn as well and I'm always so enamored by what it is that you have to say and then to everyone joining and listening I like thank you for tuning in and take care of yourselves like be good to yourselves like I, I often will say that authenticity is the ultimate declaration of self-love and so do your best to be who you are and stand in your power because it will literally transform your life and set you free.
0: Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley & Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship, any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner, LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice.